This is Cybok, the cybersecurity body of knowledge, distilling the knowledge from internationally recognized experts and providing foundational education and training for the cybersecurity sector. Hello and welcome to Cybok. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Joining us today is Christian Russo, tenured faculty at CISPA Hemholtz Center for Information Security. The knowledge area we're discussing today is network security. So the main theme is that nearly every electronic device today is connected to other systems and or services. And as of 2021, there are over 20 billion devices connected to the internet. And this is fairly convenient and offers a wide range of new applications. Um, They have severe threats to networking, which is the main motivation behind this network security knowledge area. But uh, the question is, what does secure communication actually mean? And here there are three fundamentally important security goals captured by the so-called CIA triad. The C in there stands for confidentiality, which guarantees that attackers cannot infer any sort of sensitive information from communication. The I in the CIA stands for integrity, that is, a malicious party cannot manipulate the communication content without being noticed by the communication parties. And finally, the A stands for availability, so which is the desire to have networking services accessible to the users at all times. Well, let's go and talk about the attacker models themselves. Can you give us a a description? How are they coming at this? Right. So what is important to realize is that network attackers differ widely in their capabilities uh, and also in their resources and location. Typically, what we refer to as a threat model. For example, attackers can be passive and just listen to communication. Or, in contrast, an active attacker can also drop and manipulate communication. Commonly, what we refer to as a person-in-the-middle attacker. Likewise, attackers can be insiders, that is, inside the trust domain of an organization, or be completely external. And attackers finally can also have different resources to achieve their goal. Uh, For example, as an extreme example, high-profile attackers such as upstream providers or state actors have plenty of resources available and can attack multiple targets at once. Well, the uh, the knowledge area goes into details about a lot of the different networking applications, the different types of networks that we're likely to be dealing with here. Can we go through those together? What are the different uh, flavors of networks that people tend to run across? So there are several different application types, and each has a unique security demand. I think quite common for everyone are local area networks, LANs like home networks, which connect devices in a sort of trusted domain. And while the security principles in such LANs are relatively simple, things become suddenly much more complex if you connect multiple networks. If you realize that the internet connects billions of networks and messages traverse up to dozens of networks until they reach their final destination, we suddenly have a much stronger desire for stricter security guarantees. But there are other similarly widely deployed network applications. Um, For example, every car we drive today has one or even multiple bus networks in which electronic components like brakes, pedals, wheels connect each other in a sort of ring topology. And similarly, wireless networks play a huge role, uh, not only to smartphones and laptops, but all other sorts of small Wi-Fi-enabled devices. And finally, we also have to pay attention to so-called overlay topologies, such as P2P networks, 
which are, for example, responsible for hosting the communication infrastructure for most cryptocurrencies today. Well, and as I suppose, I mean, is it fair to say that it's it's common for these various types of networks to be connected together? I mean, you could have a local area network that's also connected to the internet and has Wi-Fi and, and so on. It, it seems to me like the complexity uh, grows very quickly. Absolutely, absolutely. That's the case. It's not only home networks connected to the internet, it's also that you have bus networks like in industry, for example, be connected to the local networks in the industry, be connected to remote workers and so on. So things become very, very complex, especially if you combine multiple types of different networks. Well, let's move on to the next section together. And this is where you cover network protocols and their security. Uh, What are we covering here in this area? So fortunately, many smart people early on standardized networking practices into so-called protocols. And these protocols uh, have a four-layer stack, which we refer to as the TCP-IP stack, which helps us a lot in structuring our security analysis. At the same time, given the huge number of protocols, it is obvious that in this knowledge area, we cannot analyze all standardized protocols, and instead we focus on the most important ones. So I think for the sake of time today, I'm going to pick a couple of protocols per network layer, and show how they help um, to to bring the internet to work and also how we can secure them. Mm, okay. We're going to start with the application layer, um, which is the highest layer in the uh, four-layer stack, where we find several important protocols such as HTTP for browsing, uh, also DNS for name resolution, NTP for time synchronization, and also overlay networks like peer-to-peer or anonymous communication networks. As an example, uh, we're going to pick email security. Interestingly, when you look at it, the email submission protocol SMTP does not feature many security guarantees. Whenever you send somebody an email, any on-path attacker can read and even manipulate this email. This includes all internet service providers that this email is routed through and both email providers, um, meaning the one of the sending and the receiving party. While SMTP extensions allow to secure the communication between two email hops, Nevertheless, at least both providers retain full visibility of the email. And to defend against this, standards like PGP and SMIME use cryptographic means to obtain email confidentiality and integrity. To gain confidentiality, um, before sending an email, you would simply encrypt the message under a flashy generated symmetric key. And this key, then again encrypted under the public key of the recipient, is shared alongside with the email to the recipient. And to gain integrity, the sender signs the message with his private key. This way, attackers, including email providers, cannot infer secrets from the email body, nor are able to manipulate any email content. And by the way, very similar schemes are in use in messengers such as WhatsApp or Signal. Hmm. So this is about the implication layer. Next, we have the uh, transport layer. The transport layer features several widely popular protocols such as TCP, UDP, and most recently also QUIC. And all of them have pretty much similar needs in terms of security. Yet, at least UDP and TCP were designed in times where network security was still an exotic niche topic, if known at all. <laughs> so thus, not surprisingly, there's a protocol suite called TLS, uh, stands for Transport Layer Security, that is placed between the application and the transport layer. The communication parties use TLS to authenticate each other using certificates, which kind of trustworthily link identities, such as websites, to their cryptographic public key. The so-called public key infrastructure, the PKI, 
plays a fundamental role to publicly provide and to attest certificates. They mostly prevent that attackers can create fake certificates. And after the TLS authentication handshake, the two parties negotiate key material to encrypt the subsequent secure communication that now provides confidentiality and integrity. And this way, TLS can be used on top of TCP and UDP, then called DTLS, and is also an integral part of Quick. Next, we're talking about uh, the internet layer, but I suppose before we we move on to that, I mean, all of this stuff happens behind the scenes, and and I suppose that's part of, but uh, both a I don't know a feature and a bug. I mean, it's complicated that in order to be adopted for the users, this stuff can't have too much friction, right? Right, right. I think the the, the best uh, way to secure networks really is have to um, have transparent protocols or transparent protocol extensions that cannot be even noticed by the user, um, which is the case in in many of these applications, like for example TLS, uh, which is a very smooth transition, and you don't see anything uh, like which would um, deter you from using a web service. However, in other cases like uh, PGP, which I mentioned for email uh, encryption the usability is not that high. So you have to really exchange keys and so on, which makes it a bit cumbersome to use these protocols. Mm, yeah. Well, let's move on to the internet layer. What are the concerns here? Yeah, so at the internet, we have two widely popular protocols, namely IP, both in version 4 and version 6. IP version 4 was designed decades ago, uh, almost entirely without any security thoughts in mind. That is, IP version 4 does not provide confidentiality nor integrity guarantees and also lacks authentication. To tackle this problem at the network layer, uh, we can use IPsec or other protocols to realize so-called virtual private networks, VPNs. Mm. They allow to tunnel IP packets from sender to recipient, protecting the IP payload and optionally also the IP protocol headers. And IPsec has been so fundamental that IP version 4's successor, IP version 6, includes IPsec as a feature, yet unfortunately disabled by default. Another important aspect um, on top of these two protocols is routing security. So in the internet, we have autonomous systems, ASs, which connect to each other to form the internet using routing protocols like BGP. Unfortunately, BGP announcements can be rather easily spoofed to hijack IP prefixes, which are entire networks, which asks for defenses. Two of those are RPKI, which is Resource Public Key Infrastructure, which maps IP prefixes to autonomous systems, allowing recipients to drop bogus uh, BGP announcements. Similarly, the ROV, Route Origin Validation, allows to drop BGP advertisements in which the AS that owns the advertised prefix is not on the advertised path. Both events are very important, but unfortunately do not fully secure against prefix hijacks such that some research groups even gave up on the idea to secure BGP-based routing and proposed new, completely orthogonal internet architectures that are secure by design against these attacks. Now, this section also digs into some some other uh, areas here. We don't have a whole lot of time to go through them together, but, I mean, there are things like hardware attacks. You talk about uh, coming after Ethernet switches, um, talking about things like network segmentation and, and uh, even wireless security or bus security. These are all uh, important elements uh, of this area. Right. So this is the, the link layer, which is the dose virtual layer. 
Um, so here we're directly mostly concerned about whether or not certain parties should be actually allowed to enter a network, a physical network or not. And I think a prime example here are wireless networks, for which typically you require a passphrase or even a certificate uh, to enter the network. The problem of access control is broader, though. It also exists in cable networks, uh, which may also want to exclude non-trustworthy devices. And the IEEE 8021X is a scheme that does exactly this by forcing new devices to authenticate prior to joining a network. Once being part of the network, and you mentioned switches here, malicious parties have further attack possibilities. For example, they can spoof link layer addresses, such as MAC addresses in Ethernet networks, in order to prepare for person-in-the-middle attacks, or, now getting back to your attack, flood address caches at network switches. If you have proper access control, like IEEE 802.1x, you can prevent that attackers can fake their linked layer identities and prevent these attacks. However, preventing abuse of name resolution, like ARP in IPv4 and NDP in IPv6, is much more challenging and will involve to have hard-coded and dynamically vetted MAC to IP address bindings in the switches. In any case, a smart strategy uh, is to keep physical networks small using network segmentation. So you partition a larger network into multiple smaller ones. And this way, even if attackers manage to become part of one of the segments, other segments remain secure. Well, let's move on to the next section here. And this is where you go over some of the network security tools. What are we covering in this area? Yeah, right. So before we discuss techniques to secure individual network protocols... And now we discuss things uh, like methodologies and principles that are agnostic to the underlying protocol. And we group these methodologies in a separate section, and I can highlight some of them uh, in the following. So one very important one is firewalling. A firewall allows you to enforce network security policies for in and outgoing traffic. So essentially, it governs who can access what service in a network. And the policy in a firewall essentially is a rule over headers of IP, such as IP addresses, TCP UDP port numbers, and protocol flags. So firewall essentially keeps track of connections, and this way can um, decide which connection should be entering a network and which connection should be rather left out because it's rather um, a non-granted access. It's a very vital component in every network nowadays. It's even possible and even encouraged to use it in combination with segmentation because then you can place a so-called DMZ, the demilitarized zone, which contains services that permit public access. And even if those services are compromised, you're still not part of the internal network. So much about firewalls. One of the limitations of firewalls is that essentially you can only uh, look at the IP header information, but you don't inspect the payload of communication. If you're interested in actually going that way and try to understand what is actually being communicated here, you're going to go for a so-called intrusion detection system IDS. They do not ignore payloads and they instead reassemble the IP communication and can allow network defenders to actually define certain patterns of known bad communication that should be blocked based on the payload, communi payload communication. So this is very helpful. And if you not only raise alerts with an IDS and you also block communication, you suddenly call this not an IDS, but an IPS, like Intrusion Prevention System. So these are the two fundamental concepts of firewalling and an IDS. 
Now, in some networks, you don't really trust that you have a sort of trusted domain. Like before we assume that we have an internal network and you're going to trust all the devices in the internal network. And if you now think of um, environments where you have bring um, your own device principles, so people bring their own phone or own laptops from home and connect them to the network, suddenly you have non-trustworthy uh, participants in a network. And this uh, long-believed um, assumption of having one trust domain here doesn't hold anymore. And this is where zero-trust networking comes in handy, which is a strong paradigm shift away from the assumption of one trusted domain towards uh, not trusting all the devices on the network. So instead, we assume that all devices are untrusted and we require strong authorization of every request they do. And this design is very well compatible uh, with bring-your-own-device schemes and is really also flexible and um, more and more companies adopt this uh, over the years. So the denial of service countermeasures is uh, the first time we, we now actually address the A in the CIA triad, which is availability in CIA. And uh, availability means that you want to keep your service um, accessible to the benign users, but you want to block uh, the other users, not malicious users, from these services. And we have two types of denial of service attacks that we can um, ob observe. One is application layer attacks. They do not really target the network, but rather the application, requiring always sort of application-specific defenses. So in our domain, what is important that if you have a SYN flood, for example, you can have SYN cookies as a defense mechanism. I think more interesting from a network perspective are volumetric attacks, which exhaust the network bandwidth. And if you have such exhaustion attacks, you would probably have defenses like a scrubbing service to filter malicious traffic. Or in the worst case, you would not route the traffic that at least the remainder of your network, not the targeted system, but the remainder of the network remains, um, remains up and running. You know, it strikes me in the conclusion of uh, this knowledge area, you refer to the art of secure networking. And I think that's an important point here, that even though this is a deeply technical subject here, it's not just all ones and zeros. I mean, there is a certain amount of creativity that goes into a properly secured network. Absolutely. And you face dilemmas often. You have multiple goals that you have to fulfill. Security is one of them. But of course, you have to also pay attention to costs. And you mentioned usability, which is another dimension you should really look out for. So in the end, you're trying to tailor one practical trade-off between usability, costs, security, and so on. And all this uh, bringing together, I think, is an art. Um, on top, there is really no single catch-it-all solution, um, which means that users, network engineers, and software developers alike have to combine multiple techniques at, at many layers to get ultimately some secure state. And I think uh, we hope that with this network security knowledge area, uh, which is, of course, much more detailed than this podcast summary, we provide a profound guidance in this process. Our thanks to Christian Russo for joining us. You can check out the entire Network Security Knowledge Area publication on the Cybok website, cybok.org. This podcast is a product of the University of Bristol. Cybok is funded by the UK National Cybersecurity Program and led by Professor Awais Rashid, along with Andrew Martin, Emil Lupu, Steve Schneider, Howard Shivers, and Yulia Cherdansiova. 
The Cybok Podcast is produced by The Cyberwire with senior producer Jennifer Iben and Bristol University's Helen Jones. The executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. <laughs>